Up next, an encore interview with WAMC's Alan Shartok and two bluegrass legends, Earl Scruggs and Ralph Stanley. Scruggs died in 2012 while Stanley died in 2016. In the first interview, Alan talks with Earl Scruggs and his wife Louise, who died in 2006, followed by the interview with Ralph Stanley. It's next. Hi, this is Alan Shartok, and joining me today is a legend in the bluegrass country and banjo world. He's been nominated for 13 Grammy Awards and is winner of three Grammys. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's a National Medal of Arts Award winner, and frankly, it would take me too long to read the rest of his incredible list of honors. And with him today is his wife, the amazing Louise Scruggs, who has done so much for Earl and his career and for all the rest of us. Welcome, Earl and Louise. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. Well, it's great to talk to you. Let me ask you something, since Louise plays such a tremendous role in this relationship and and in everything we've heard. Tell us how you met. (laughs) Well, I came to Nashville in 1945. Not too long after I came here, I met her, and we dated for a couple of years and then married in 1948. Louise, do you remember the first time you ever laid eyes on him? Oh, yes. (laughs) I remember that very distinctly. What was it like? Do you remember the moment? Can you tell us about it? I'd happened to go to the Grand Ole Opry one night, and I just the chance happened to be sitting down on the front row, and he was working with a band here, and he glanced down where I was sitting, and it kind of gave me a faint little smile, and I thought, well, isn't he cute? <laughs> so anyway, we had a mutual friend that knew him, and I said something about, well, he's a nice-looking guy, little guy, and so anyway, the person that I knew said, well, come back next week, and I'll introduce you. So I went back the next Saturday night, and he introduced us. And so That's how it all started. <laughs> so I have a question, uh, one more question for Louise here. Mm-hmm. Louise, could you imagine possibly that you were going to be marrying one of the most famous men in the world? No, I didn't have a clue at that time. <laughs> Well, Earl, let me ask you something. Um, I'm a very bad banjo player, so therefore this is the thrill of my life to be able to talk to you. But I wanted to ask you this. There's a lot of stories told about how you came up with the three-finger-picking style. Mm. And I'd love to know whether you can remember the moment that it happened. I sure can. I was raised on a farm over in North Carolina, and I was sitting in what we call the front room. That's where we would have company when company came and... I was just sitting in there by myself picking a tune that I still play today, Reuben. I'm in a mood where if somebody asked me what I was thinking about, I probably wouldn't know what to tell them. But anyway, I suddenly realized I had this middle finger going with my index finger and and thumb. So, boy, that sounded great to me. (laughs) And I played that one tune the rest of the week. I don't know what day that was that I started doing that, and my oldest brother, Junior, he'd come over to our house on Saturday, and I couldn't wait to show him what I was doing. 
He had never heard anything like it, and neither had I. Anyway, I was sitting on the edge of the porch, and he came walking up the dirt road to where we lived, and he walked in across the yard, up the steps, and into the house. And uh, as he went in, he said, well, is that all you can pick? <laughs> and that shocked me because I hadn't really tried what I was doing on any other tune or anything. But anyway, I tuned the banjo out of detuning, which Ruben has played in, mm-hmm. open G. But anyway, what I was doing worked in all the tunes that I did. It just came to me just like a thought would come to you in a mood like, like that. Yeah, I was thinking of Isaac Newton discovering gravity. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Earl and Louise, tell me about how it got started with Bill Monroe. Oh, I can tell you, I just came here with another group, his name was John Miller, and I was working here, and in the Monroe's group was a fiddle player that we later used in our group, Lester and my group, some, his name was Jim Shoemate, and they'd never had a banjo picker in the group that played like me. As a matter of fact, Monroe had a tenor banjo player with him, and we used to have breakfast in a hotel here called Tulane Hotel, which is no longer here. But we'd have breakfast together on Saturday morning. He had wanted me to quit John and go to work with Bill. Well, John was treating me good, and I was happy. But anyway, it wasn't so terribly long until John decided to get off the road. So I told Shoemate if Bill wanted to hear me, he could come by my room, and I'd pick him a tune. And he came and picked him two tunes, Dear Old Dixie and Sally Gooden. That's how I got started with him. And he brought you down to play with the band as the, as the next part of this, did he not? He wanted to, me to come down to the yeah, Grand Ole Opry right. and hear me pick with a fiddle player, you know. And So anyway, I, I stayed over and caught a bus out of here. It used to be the last bus out of here going east around 10 o'clock on Saturday night. So I stayed around and picked with the group when they wasn't, wasn't on the stage. And then I started to leave, and he wanted me to go to work with him the next day and I said my clothes are in Knoxville and I've got the flu I got to go to North Carolina where my home is and I'll doctor up and I can be back next Saturday night so that's when I came back and started work with him and he worked you pretty hard didn't he well everybody did I mean especially him he and Roy was two leading acts on the Grand Ole Opry at that time and see the Grand Ole Opry didn't pay that much to keep a band, he made you income by playing show dates. So anyway, he worked just about every day in the week. Well, he wasn't working so much when I went to work with him, but it wasn't long until he was playing dates every every week almost. Earl, Lester Flat was already in the band? Yeah. 
and did you become friends? I mean, how did that work? I know, I know you left together, but were you friendly then? Oh, uh, yeah. We used to room together to be able to get by, you know. Right. So uh, he and I got along real well, and so we roomed together, and then when I decided to leave in 48, I was going to quit and go back to the factory in North Carolina, and then he quit because he wasn't going to be happy in the band with me going, he said. Anyway, then he asked me, if, why didn't we uh, start a band and see if we could make it on our own? And that's how we started over Bristol, Virginia. Bristol is on the Virginia-Tennessee line, so we went over there and went to work, and the group we had really gelled good, so we started making a living right away, playing dates, and that's how it all started. Louise, at what point did you start managing everything? Uh, 1955. You're sort of credited as being a person who seized some real good opportunities, and one of those was Bob Dylan, Louise. I've read that Robert Shelton from the New York Times sent you some Bob Dylan records and that you were very impressed with that. So how did that come about? Yeah, Robert Shelton was a reporter for the New York Times, a music critic, and we got to know Bob quite well. Uh, Earl had worked several dates up in New York City, and so he reviewed one of their concerts, and he gave it a great review and referred to Earl as uh, Earl Scruggs is to the fast-string banjo what Paganini is to the violin. And so, anyway, we got to be good friends. And Bob uh, Shelton was telling Robert Shelton was telling me about this folk singer in New York he'd heard, and the John Hammond was going to sign him to Columbia Records, and he had an album coming out. And so he said, "I'll get your copy. I have him send you a copy when he comes out." I guess I had the first Bob Dylan album in Nashville. Wow. <laughs> I've always been a Bob Dylan fan. Well, I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm. Maggie's farm Well, I wake up in the morning Hold my hands and pray for rain Got a head full of eyes That are driving me insane It's a shame the way she makes me scrub the floor And I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm So did you encourage Earl to play some Dylan tunes? Is that how it happened and to work with him? Well, we have three sons, and of course they were coming along and listening to different types of music too. And so they were into country rock and rock music and folk and all that. And so they were big fans of Dylan as well. And we got to know him, and so Earl recorded an instrumental he wrote. Earl, what's the name of this tune? The Nashville Skyline Rag. several of his songs and then when Earl had the Earl Scruggs review out touring they still recorded some of, some of his material. You were I say- guess what spread my wings more than anything was when I formed a review with my sons 
Right. Gary and Randon and uh, Steve, our youngest son, and a year. So whatever it was, he was old enough to go to work with us, too. So that's how the review started. And that did more for me than anything I'd ever done before or since. Family means a great deal to both of you, doesn't it? It sure did, yeah. Earl, I want to ask you about the invention of the Scruggs peg. <laughs> And mm-hmm. the Scruggs pegs. Mm-hmm. I actually went to hear a bluegrass band the other night, and the guy had Scruggs pegs. I said, wow. Now, tell us about how you thought that up. Well, what? actually, the first tune I ever recorded was Earl's Breakdown, and I didn't have a tuning peg other than the regular peg, four-to-one ratio on my banjo. Mm-hmm. And I did that. It's just something I staggered up on. Mainly, a lot of times you'd be picking and, and, and kind of bump something or get out of tune and you'd have to retune while you're playing the tune you know everything was live back then and uh, for tv but everything was live and you just tune by ear and sometimes you'd hit it and sometimes you're just close and so that's how the tuning tune first came out then later when i seen it i was going to have to do that on every show i did i started trying to think of an easier way to do it uh-huh and not just have to guess at it. Okay, so for all the rookies out there, just in case they don't know this inside baseball we're talking about, there are two extra pegs on Earl Scruggs' banjo. And when, mm-hmm. he, and when he plays, he can go dang, dang, in other words, a chime-like effect. I heard that when the Beverly Hillbillies came to you guys and offered you the chance to do the music for the show, you, Louise, were somewhat askance about the whole thing because you thought that they might be insulting the Southern culture. Is that true? That's true. I've seen movies where they put Southern people in movies and they give them this fake accent or whatever, (laughs) and it just doesn't come off sounding right. And I didn't know what the connotation of the Beverly Hillbillies would be and what the show was actually going to be about. And so I talked to Paul Henning, who was the producer and writer and creator of the show, and he said, oh, this is a a family-orientated show, and it's going to be about this family over... He never did specifically spot where they were from, and a lot of people said they were from Missouri. Some people said they were from Tennessee, Arkansas, and all over, but he never did designate Mm -hmm. an area, an exact, precise area where they were from. And so uh, they were over in the mountains somewhere, and they discovered all so they moved to california and they were a rich family and he said it was in no way going to be derogatory toward country music and at that time the word hillbilly just didn't exactly fit everyone's idea of what country music really was to call it hillbilly and so paul said well if we wanted to see the film he would have someone bring it out so he had his music director come to nashville and he brought the pilot with him and we saw the film without any music on it, and Paul was absolutely, just, he was he was really wanting Earl and Flint mm. to do the soundtrack for the series. So he brought it out, and we saw it, and it looked okay. And so they recorded the soundtrack on the actual show. Come and listen to my story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food, and up to the ground come a bubbling crew. Oil, that is. 
black gold, Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, old Jeb's a millionaire. The kinfolk said, Jeb, move away from there. Said, California is a place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is, swimming pools, movie stars. The Beverly Hillbilly. While they were in the process of recording it, I tend to casually mention, I believe that would make a good single. So I <laughs> called Mr. Henning back the next day and I said, what do you think about them recording this for a single for Columbia? And he said, I think it's a great idea. Can you work it out? It'd be great. So I called their producer, Don Law, who was producing their records at the time. And so it was okay with him. And so they recorded it. And I think it was released about two or three weeks later. And it was their first number one record. December 8, 1962, it was number one Billboard country chart. It went up in the pop chart as well. Now it's time to say goodbye to Jed and all his kin. They would like to thank you folks for kindly dropping in. You're all invited back again to this locality to have a heap and helping off their hospitality. Beverly Hillbillies, that's what they call them now. Nice folks. Y'all come back, yeah? Were either of you prepared for what an incredible success it was? No, I wasn't. I had no idea it was going to make such a hit. The show went to number one in three weeks on the network. No, I watched one of them a long time ago, and you guys were on it, Earl. And there were more than one in which you actually showed up on the Beverly Hillbillies, right, in person. They did seven. Is we that did right? seven all total, yeah. That was a great opportunity for us, and one of the finest professional people I'd ever worked with went out there, and all that show was done with one camera. Really? And I don't it, think it, country music had ever had that type of exposure before, uh, because it was later on shown in 76 countries around the world. I mean, it was all over. Now, didn't somebody fall in love with one of you guys, one of the characters on the show? Wasn't that part of the plot? At one time. Well, uh, they had a wife. <laughs> We had, uh, we both had a wife on on the first show, uh-huh. and they spun her off. And then it wouldn't look right for me to have one wife this year and then come back next year with another wife. <laughs> so I never did have a wife anymore. But Joy Lanson played Lester's wife mm-hmm. on just about all the series that we did. So you were on seven times. I had no idea. Now then came a film, a very special film. What was it? Talking about Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, Bonnie and Clyde. How did that? Ha- how did Bonnie and Clyde happen? Warren Beatty called. I picked up the phone one afternoon, and he said, "This is Warren Beatty. Uh, I'm producing and directing a movie, and I would like to speak to Earl Scruggs about scoring the movie for me." And so we talked about that several times, and uh, he he called back four or five times, I guess, and he was looking for something that would fit in with it era of when when that actually occurred back in the 1930s, I guess. And then he had a collection of Earl's recordings and several albums, he said. And so he was going to come to Nashville and discuss the music score with Earl. And so he called back one day and he said, well, I found exactly what I want for my movie, and it's Foggy Mountain Breakdown. <laughs> first cut of that. And he wanted to use it in the movie, so that's what he ended up doing. And uh, he just took splices of it and used it throughout the movie. So 
He said, well, one thing I remember distinctly him saying, I'm going to get Earl a hit record on this song. And he did. Could you get used to the fact, even, you know, after your successes, that a Warren Beatty would be calling you on the telephone and sort of begging you to do this? When you think about it, I've talked to a lot of people, and I was very honored to speak to Warren Beatty, of course. He's a great artist and a great movie star and a great person. And so, no, I wasn't that shocked about it. Now, you've been honored by presidents of the United States. You were given one of the greatest birthday parties in the history of this nation, it was a great birthday party, was it not? You mean the last birthday yes. party? Oh, yes. You mean the Hall of Fame? Yes. Yeah, it was, it was a surprise. He didn't know it was going to happen. Oh, is that right? How, how did yeah. you keep it secret from him? It was not easy. I just... Uh, you say, honey, we're going out tonight? <laughs> well, I told him we had an appointment to go down to the Hall of Fame, and they wanted him to do an interview with one of the newspaper reporters here in town. So we got down to the Hall of Fame and walked in, and the theater's full of people, and the green room is full of musicians, and everybody you can think of that picked something here in Nashville. And I thought Vince Gill made a nice little statement during the ceremony. He said, well, if there's any records being recorded today on Music Row, I don't think they're going to be very good because everyone's here. So, I thought that was a a neat comment from Vince. And uh, so there was about 20 people on stage, and they played Happy Birthday and Foggy Mountain Breakdown, and Mm -hmm. Gibson Company gave Earl uh, Earl Banjo, a very, very fine, fancy banjo. And uh, and then they had a birthday cake in the shape of a banjo, well, practically the same size, I guess. Just one, one incredible little event. And uh, he got a letter from the president, and he got one from our senators and uh, congressmen and the mayor and the governor, and it was just really, really neat. Earl, I have two questions that I wanted to put to you that people ask me about you, and I'm sure no expert. How much did you sing in your career? Well, what singing I I did was mainly in the trios and and the quartets. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It first started when it first started with Bill, uh, Lester and Bill. Bill sung the tenor, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I sung what I call the baritone part. And then they had another guy singing bass in the quartet. Now, there was a song that I remember called Pearl. Didn't you yeah. both sing on that one? Yeah, <laughs> I tried to. <laughs> no, I thought it was Pearl. great. Pearl, 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 yeah. Pearl, 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 don't give your love to her. I have got a horse and mule, 40 acres near school. We'll be happy as to bud. Pearl, 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 come be my loving girl. Don't you marry Lester Flat. He slicks his hair with possum fat. Change your name to Mrs. Earl Scrub. That's another Paul Henning production um, song that, that we recorded. Mm-hmm. Now, you've always been a guy who is not afraid of experimenting. 
And that seems to be the, the difference between you and Flat. Flat was a guy who was more of a traditionalist, and you were always looking to learn something new. And you still are, aren't you? Yeah, nothing pleases me better than to get on stage with a good group. I have a tremendous band that I work with regular. But when a new guy comes in, you know, a good musician, I enjoy it. Everybody has to try to be original. When they put their own ideas into it, their music, it's going to sound a little different, you know, as opposed to somebody that's a dead copy of somebody. There's a very famous picture of you out in the Vietnam protests at a time when country music was seen to be, you know, very conservative politically, and there you are out with the group, this huge group of hundreds of thousands of people protesting the Vietnam War. Do you remember what went into your thinking as to whether you wanted to do that or not? I just didn't believe it in what they were doing at the time. And I had three sons coming along, and I didn't want, I, I'm not a protester, it's, it's not holding up for my country, but I don't want them to get killed for nobody's damn publicity. And I just didn't believe in it. And, and I wanted to see it end, which they did. So anyway, I, I hadn't dwelled on that, but I did at the time because I thought they was going to get one or two of my boys. As a matter of fact, I went through World War II. I was a 4F. They turned me down, but I went, went in mm-hmm. World War II myself. But I thought we had a reason because Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor. But I, I didn't believe in anybody's political gain somebody getting killed over there. But it still was risky. I mean, look at what happened with the Dixie Chicks when one of them made a remark that offended the political establishment. You know, that really hurt them. And I'm wondering whether or not you worried about that kind of thing happening to you. I didn't give a damn if you'll excuse my (laughs) North Carolina bro, because I I didn't believe in, in, in it. And I wasn't thinking about my career at all. But I tell you, it worked right the other way. It's one of the well, it could have it could have backfired on him, and yeah. it could very well have. And we didn't consider whether it was going to or whether it wasn't. It no. was just something he believed in, and and I believed in it, and so it it really worked well, in my favor because there's many young guys and their parents and everybody didn't want their boys sent off and got killed for no reason at all at at the time. So it, uh, as far as my financial situation with my business, it just doubled or tripled my business. Well, we weren't looking at it from that No, I never thought about it. I never, I never. I, it was just something that he believed in doing, and he did. I, I so. just did it. Now, Earl, before you, there was country music and there was folk music. But, of course, we know that a good deal of country is, you know, taken from the folk. But you, as much as anyone, had the guts to combine both of those. Do you ever think about that whole thing and how that unfolded? Well, it was a good ride for me. I mean, I developed that style of picking when I was about 10, 10, 11 years old. And then to make a living just picking the way that I I loved to pick, you know, I, I just had a good time and enjoyed myself. I didn't give it any thought about what was going on. Do you ever think about the analogy between what happened in Vietnam and what's happening now in terms of Iraq? I'm not into that as much as a lot of people, I guess. Mm-hmm. Except I, I just... Uh, it all seems quite confusing. It, yeah, I don't know if Bush knows what, what he's into. I don't know. I, I, I just try to not uh, mm-hmm. try to analyze it because nothing I can do about it. Mm-hmm. 
Earl, you've played with some wonderful people. I'm thinking about people like Doc Watson and Johnny Cash. But one of the things we in public radio are very interested in is a show called Prairie Home Companion. Have you been on it? No, sir. It's one of my favorite shows. I like to see that guy. Garrison Keillor. But I'd love to have you on that show because, you know, it would be great. But they have a song on there. I always think about you when they sing it. And it has to do with these biscuits that they're selling. And it reminds me very much of Martha White. You I know. think that's where they got the idea. That's where he said he first came up on the idea of doing that, that he came to the Grand Ole Opry. Earl and Flat uh, had a sponsor here for years and years. Martha White Flower. Now you bake plain uh-huh. with Martha White. Yes, ma'am. Goodness gracious, good and light, Martha White. Martha White. Now you bake better biscuits, cakes, and pies. Call Martha White, say fries and flour. The one-all-purpose flour. Martha White, say fries and flour. It's got high rise. I've heard you guys do that song many times, and then when I first heard Garrison Keillor doing it, I said, my goodness, that's Martha White. Yeah. Well, Garrison said that's where he got his idea. He came to Grand Ole Opry one night and heard that, and that's where he got his idea for that. Well, has your family tried them powder mill? Has your family tried them powder mill? Families try them all, you know you're satisfied and live them real hot item. Powder milk, yes. Powder milk biscuits. <laughs> Heavens, they're tasty. And extra biscuits. Well, we love you very much, both of you, for giving us all of this time and for everything that you've given to all of us over the years. And for me, doing an interview like this is once in a lifetime, and I, I do really thank you for being here. Well, it's been my pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and made me think some of the old things I hadn't thought about in a while. I appreciate talking with you. And, Louise, thank you to you for everything you've done for us, too. Well, thank you. Cotton on the roadside, cotton in the ditch. We all picked the cotton, but we never got rich. Daddy was a veteran, a Southern Democrat, said they ought to kill a rich man to vote like that. Sing a song, song of the South. We eat potato pie and shut my mouth. That was bluegrass legend Earl Scruggs and his wife, Louise. Up next, Alan sits down with the equally legendary bluegrass musician, Ralph Stanley. Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and today I'm very excited because with us is the incredible legendary bluegrass performer, Dr. Ralph Stanley. Born February 25th, 1927 in Stratton, Virginia, Ralph and his older brother Carter formed the seminal bluegrass ensemble, the Stanley Brothers, who made a series of watershed recordings for Columbia Records from 1949 until 1952. Now 76 years old, Stanley's been performing professionally since he and Carter formed their first group in their native southwestern Virginia in 1946. Between the date and 1966, when Carter died, the Stanley Brothers and the Clinch Mountain Boys became the most celebrated bluegrass groups in the world, ultimately rivaling in popularity such titans as Bill Monroe, Flatten Scruggs, Jim and Jesse, and the Osborne Brothers. While he has long been revered by enthusiasts of folk, bluegrass, and country music, Stanley has lately been commanding the kind of honors due a musical original. In 2002, he won Grammys for the best 
country male vocalist performance beating out Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Tim McGraw, Lyle Lovett, and Ryan Adams, an album of the year for his part in the O Brother Collection. He is the central figure in the D.A. Pennebaker documentary, Down from the Mountain. January 2000, Stanley became the first artist of the new millennium to be inducted into the historic Grand Old Opry. He holds the Living Legend Award from the Library of Congress and was the first recipient of the Traditional American Music Award from the National Endowment for the Humanities. One of his proudest achievements is the honorary doctorate in music Lincoln Memorial University conferred on him in 1976. Welcome, Ralph Stanley. Good to be with you. Ralph Stanley, a lot of our audience needs to know a little bit more about the origins of bluegrass music. How did it all start? Well, I guess bluegrass music, you know, I'd say Bill Monroe was the man that caused it to be named bluegrass. I started in the music several years before they called it bluegrass. But when we had our first festival in uh, Fincastle, Virginia, why, they wanted them to know what to call a bluegrass festival. And since Bill Monroe had it, was from the bluegrass state of Kentucky and had been calling his music bluegrass for a little while, they decided to call it bluegrass festivals. So I would give, you know, Bill uh, the credit for it. He upbeated the old-time traditional music like maybe like I play, and put a drive to it and improved it. But I, I sort of still stick to the old-time, uh, I call it traditional bluegrass, or old-time mountain music. Ralph Stanley, how did you get started? How did it all begin? Well, that's hard to say, you know. Uh, Carter and me, my brother, we got us a banjo and a guitar, and we fooled around and tried to learn to play it back through the uh, our high school years, and we would play sometimes at the high school play during uh, resetting the stage when they'd have to uh, different parts of the mm. play. And we both went to World War II, and then when we got out, well, we just started playing, got a job on the radio station, and went from there. It was a local radio station? We played about three weeks on Norton, Virginia, WNVA, close home, and then we moved and started a new show called Farm and Fun Time in Bristol, Virginia, Tennessee, oh, which is true. probably 70 miles from here. And then we started that hour show each day. Wow. Now, how did you decide what your instrument was going to be? Well, uh, Carter, he, he liked the guitar, and I liked the uh, I just liked the sound of a banjo. And mm-hmm. I thought it would be easier for me to learn, and I still like the sound of a banjo. Mm-hmm. But you've had many incarnations of the band. How have you chosen the people who play with you? Well, most of the time, they know when I need somebody, and most of the time, people have called me. And, of course, I, you know, a lot of them I know, and then when I meet them, well, I audition them, and then I find out what kind of people they are. You know, the way a man is, uh, acts and so forth, is as important as his talent in the music. And I try to get them both, you know, get both there and one and the man there. So when you're touring, they've got to be able to stand up to the touring and got to be able to be a productive part of a small group? Yeah, and be decent and sober. And uh, My bands have always went well-dressed. I like to separate the dress just a little bit from the audience, you know. I like to respect the music and... I never have one on the stage with my shirt tail hanging out or ragged jeans or something, and I always try to respect it. Let me name a few things and people and just see if you can give me some reminiscences about them and what your relationships with them uh, have been. Bill Monroe. 
Well, Bill and me were very good friends. Bill recorded on records of mine, and I recorded some on his. And we got along real well. I sang at Bill's funeral, and he was one of my best friends. What kind of man was he? Well, he was a businessman, and he was a man just sort of like I am. He believed in doing everything right, and he respected his music. And I, th- I thought he was a fine man. He, uh, he was a little hard sometimes to get acquainted with, but when you got acquainted with him, why, he's very easy to understand. Earl Scruggs. I'm well acquainted with Earl, but I have never spent the time with Earl that I did Bill. Mm-hmm. But as far as I'm concerned, Earl Scruggs is fine, too. When you get some of these people who started out in your band or Bill Monroe's band and they go on, how do you feel about them? Do you begrudge them their success or do you feel proud that, that you had something to do with developing them? Well, I'm very glad that Ricky Skaggs, Keith Whitley, I started both of them, and Larry Sparks. And I'm very proud that they went on. I saw talent in Ricky Skaggs and Keith Whitley when I first heard them. Ricky Skaggs started at a very young age. How did you spot them? They spotted me. They came out to a show. Uh-huh. I was late getting to the show that night. They went on the stage and held the people till I got there. I heard them, and they wanted to get started and uh, told me if I could ever do anything for them. They'd appreciate it. I saw that I wanted to help them. They had talent, and I wanted to. I had a full band, but I took both the boys on and kept them for, I guess Ricky stayed with me three years, and then Keith Mm -hmm. stayed with me about four, and then Keith came back and stayed with me about five more. Do they make a lot of money, the guy, the side men in these bands? Can they make money? Well, they make a living. (laughs) Is bluegrass a genre, a place that people can really develop in in this country, or is it still so small that it doesn't bring enough people in to really attain sort of a certain kind of superstardom that you have, for example? Well, it's not as big as country music, but I'm proud to have been a part of Old Brother Where Art Thou. Mm-hmm. And I think the soundtrack on that has done more for this old-time music than anything. Hmm. And you spoke of me winning a Grammy for a country artist, you know, which I'm... Uh, I was very proud, and that was one of the highlights of my life, to win from the big country artists. And that was done through the Old Brother War Art Thou soundtrack. And the way that that got out, you know, the big radio stations wouldn't play it. Public TV and public radio put that soundtrack out where people could hear it. And that's, uh, I give that a lot of credit for me winning that Grammy and being as popular as I am now, you know, which is, I've always made a good living, but uh, everything got better after that. I bet it did. Your music quite frequently has a heavy religious content to it. How do audiences react to that? Well, anywhere that I play, I don't play any uh, bars or anything now, but back when I used to, I've always included gospel music anywhere I went, and people has always liked it, and supported it real well. Has the industry itself changed substantially? I mean, what's happened? What was it like in the beginning, and to what degree has it metamorphosed into something else? Well, it spread out. You know, when we first started, we played just around four or five states, Virginia, Tennessee, West Virginia, and Kentucky, and it spread out now all over the United States and uh, and all. I've played in 15 foreign countries, Japan three times, and, you know, it's just so much better known and everything. Japan is 
very high on country music. I've been there and always astounded by the role that the banjo and fiddle music play there. Do you have any sense of what that's about? Well, I've been over there, as I said, three times, toured Japan three times, and most of the fans that we had were younger people that speaks English and understands English. And I'm very proud to say that, that we uh, had sold out houses everywhere we went over there. And I don't know why they like it, but they do. What's your favorite instrument? Is it the banjo, or do you like the mandolin, or what do you like the most? I like banjo and fiddle and mandolin. Which but, is the hardest of them to play? Well, that just depends on the individual. <laughs> on the player? Yeah, I would say a fiddle would be the hardest for me. Have you ever played the fiddle? No, no, I don't uh-huh. play the fiddle. Uh-huh. All I play is the banjo. Yeah, and when you're recruiting for the band, is it the fiddle player who is the hardest to get, a good fiddle player? I would say so, yeah. I guess the fiddle player is more scarce than the mandolin, because I've never, I, I, banjo, there's a lot of banjo players. What about politics and, and music? I know that people like Pete Seeger and folk music and others have had tremendous political influence with their music. Have you found yourself doing the same kinds of things, influencing pe- the way people think about things? Uh, well, not, not too much. Are you talking about the politics that's elected and voting and so forth? Sure. Um, do, you, do you give your opinions in such a way that either in the music or in the patter around the songs that people take and say, well, that's very interesting that he's saying that? I try to stay out of politics and religion as far as state and what denomination things I'm in. I don't like to mention that in music because you're going to make somebody mad. (laughs) Ralph Stanley, do you ever get into a situation where people stereotype you? You say, eh, you know, this guy must be some cracker from the South and that they misinterpret who you are simply because they have an image of what a Southern bluegrass player might be like. I've never had that to happen. I have as good, if not better, fans in all over the North, the West, as I do in the South. I've never had any trouble with any anybody like that. I've got real, true fans. New York City, uh, San Francisco, all over, mm-hmm. and the Midwest. And I've never had nothing like that to happen. Now, how about the Grand Ole Opry? Tell us how that all came about. Well... I never really tried to get on the Grand Ole Opry until, like, in 2000, uh, just six months before that. And when I, you know, really tried and wanted to get on the Opry, why, they were ready for me. Who are the great characters you've known, the ones that sort of stick out in your minds as somebody that you'll never, ever forget? Bill Monroe will be one I'll never forget. George Jones my favorite country. And, and what is it about George Jones's music that is so memorable? He's just good at it, and he he knows how to phrase it, and he just knows how to sing. Can you see any of your old-time roots in a sort of modern singer like George Jones? Well, no, not really. Now, I've recorded several songs with George Jones. Mm-hmm. And how did that go? We harmonized good together. <laughs> And he's always wanted to do an album with me, a full album, and I've always wanted to do one with him. We Neither one just never went forward and, and done it. But he's recorded on two of my CDs. How, how is it when you, you get into a studio with a guy like George Jones, Ralph Stanley, how is it that it unfolds? Do you have to sort of just start to sing, or do you have to get to know each other? How does that work? I've known George Jones actually before when he first started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I started just a little bit before he did, and we uh, we worked together and knew each other, you know, from years ago. We didn't have to get acquainted, and we didn't have to rehearse much. We knew what each one could do, and we just recorded and be easy. Mm-hmm. How about your relatives in the band? Well, my son sings for me. I know that. I'm real proud of Ralph second. And I hear quite frequently that he takes over the patter in some of these concerts. Well, he, I always give him a chance to do his part. Mm-hmm. And he has played a few shows with the Clinch Mountain Boys, booked him on his own, and I wanted to take a little time off. Did you teach him how to play, or how did that happen? No, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't teach him. He just, he just had it in him, and, and he taught himself. Do you think people who know about good music, do you think it's genetic? In other words, do you think somebody has a banjo playing gene in them, or a music gene which allows them, as opposed to some people who can do art, some people can do music? You think some people are born that way? I think everybody's got a gift. Some for music, some for mechanic. And I think you know what you have a gift for. You're going to want to do that. Was there ever a point when he was coming up that you said to yourself, uh-oh, he should probably find some other business besides the music business to be in, or did you were you for it right from the beginning? I was for it right from the beginning, and I never, I never even thought about doing anything else. Now, your relationship with your brother was outstanding, and, you know, he died several years ago. How has it been without him? Well, I've missed him, still miss him. And my brothers, you know, brothers are close. I mean, him and me were, and I thought we were real good together. We phrased alike, and we breathed alike, and you can't beat father and son or brother, a brother team, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And, w- and when he passed, was it hard for you to get going again and to continue on? Not really hard to go on except, you know, the sympathy and the feelings I had. But I didn't have a bit of trouble going on and pleasing the people. Some people stay with it. Some people don't. You've stayed with it all of these years through dips and peaks and valleys. Some people get out. What is it that helped you sort of just stay with the plan, with the program, keep going? Just love of the music? I love the music, and my health has always been good handling it. And... um, I think to stay a little active like that would, would be a lot better than just sitting down and quitting. So you think retirement is not always the best thing for people, right? No. What happens if you retire? Well, most people just die pretty quick. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a mistake. They're telling me to retire. I just worry about that. So what do you think that the aspiring young banjo fiddle guitar player should do in order to make a place for themselves? I think they can just just burn a lot of midnight oil and work, work, work. And drive your parents crazy like I did with the banjo? They used to come knocking at the door at 12 o'clock and say, will you shut up? Just like I did when I first started learning. Were your parents annoyed with you? My dad very much. Could you tell us a little about that? Well, he just make Carter and me get out of the house and go out somewhere and rehearse, maybe under an apple tree or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He couldn't handle it. Do you think maybe there's a little what they would call today reverse psychology involved here? The mother who says to the precocious kid, sit down and practice the piano, and the kid revolts? Yeah. Then maybe the right thing to do is tell the kid to get out of the house. Well... You know, even me right now, now I've got a a grandson uh, that's learning the mandolin and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I get sort of aggravated at him, too. For the same reason? It's just just annoying. Just annoying you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about the radio? 
the radio stations. As you know, and you indicated before that the commercial stations didn't play your stuff for a long time, the public radio did. What is it that would allow us to hear some of this stuff more regularly? How would we get radio to play it? Well, that's a good question. I just don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't understand it. And really, that never did worry me too much because I've always felt that if they played you every day on a radio station, when you went out to do a personal appearance, they might not be as anxious to see you, you know, <laughs> or if they didn't play. Ralph Stanley, do you travel on a bus? Yeah. And how many people can fit on it? I'd say about 10. We've got, got it built in, you know, with bunks and closets. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say about 10 or 12 can, can seat themselves comfortably. Do you get a better spot than the other guys do on the bus? Well, not really. Who drives the bus? I got the driver, E.C. French. He's a neighbor of mine, has been for a long time. He's been with with me five years. I've had a couple of other drivers. A.C. French, and he's a neighbor, and he takes that job on, and you go all over the world, all over the country in that bus, don't you? Yeah, all over the United States. Yeah. I've never tried the Atlantic (laughs) with it. (laughs) When you come to a town... Some of these towns you've been through many times, but when you come to a new town and you have to get acclimatized to the new town, you're not there that long, but do you ever find any interesting experiences when you hit a new place? Sometimes I don't even notice it. I have a road manager, and I don't even know where we're going or nothing. Or where you are. No. (laughs) Ralph Stanley, what happens with the openers? I've always wondered about this, the people who open for you. Now, some of them are great, and some of them stink. When you have somebody who they put out there who's not that good, do you have any reaction to that? Well, you know, a lot of times we don't have an have opener, but when we do have openers, why, well, they've been a, several times that, you know, that I was a little annoyed and couldn't wait for them to get through, but of course that goes along with it. Yeah. And do you ever have a say in who does that, or does the road manager have any say in that, or do they just put who they ever want to be there? mean to put on the show? Yeah, right. No, that usually uh, is left up to the sponsor. Now, tell me a little bit about this, you know, the, the Scruggs band, Lester Platt and Scruggs had Martha White. And Have you ever had such a thing, an underwriter or a sponsor who supported, you know, the, the bus to travel the, the time? No, I've never had that. I, we had sponsors uh, back years ago on radio programs and so mm-hmm. forth, but uh, I've actually never had a had a sponsor like that. Do you ever worry about the way, the direction of music today? I mean, personally, I can't stand modern rap music. I just don't like it, don't understand it. And I'm wondering whether you have any reactions to the development of, of music in this country. Well, I, I don't pay much attention to it. Like, I, I have my favorites. George Jones is one of them. And, uh, yeah, but I'm talking about other than sort of country music. Well, I, I never listen to it. <laughs> Tell me about your doctorate. That must have been very exciting. I have a doctorate. You have a doctorate. Now, they've come to calling you Dr. Ralph Stanley. They don't fool around about that. And I wondered whether whether you like that. Yeah, I like it. I'm proud of it. Well, it's a terrific thing. And I think everybody gets a big kick out of saying that it's really good that we are finally recognizing experts by giving them these honorary degrees. After all, you know more about this than some kid who gets up there and writes a Ph.D. about the number of triplets that's played on a banjo somewhere. So I I think it's a real wonderful thing that that they've done there. I do. Yeah, I do. I'm real proud of it. 
So now, what happens next? Where are you going in, in terms of your own development? Well, there's not too much different. After this soundtrack on Old Brother, Where Art Thou did good, well, T-Bone Burnett produced that, and he wanted me to do a, a CD with more older-type songs yeah. and a more older-type band, which I did, and they released on Columbia Records. And he, I guess because Old Death and some of the songs, you know, did real well, he had an idea that maybe some older ones might work. The Library of Congress has a phenomenal collection of music, and I'm quite sure that your music is going to play a very prominent, and has played a very prominent part there. They've given you their Living Legend Award. Are you concerned about passing this music on, that there aren't enough people who are going to be able to do that? Well, I, actually, I hadn't thought too much about that. I'm proud that my music's in it, and it'll be carried on. Tell me about the uh, kinds of camaraderie that occurs when you're on a bill with other people. Do the bands get along? Do they ever get competitive? Do they ever fight with each other? What happens? Well, I've seen you at the festivals. Experienced anything like that? uh I've seen you at some of the festivals, and you you get up there, and it's a, a big thrill for me to see you. And then there are a lot of other bands. Does anybody ever worry that the other guy's better than they are, or or is it different? Well, I've never thought much more about that. I know. Every band's there's got fans, and I know I've got my fans, so I never, I never do pay attention to that. Ralph Stanley, you've been wonderful to us, and we really do appreciate it. Thank you. Now's the time to make your preparation. Now's the time to make your preparation. So stop and make your reservation. There'll be shouting on the hills of God. There'll be shouting on the hills of glory. Shouting on the hills, shouting on the hills. There'll be shouting on the hills of glory. There'll be shouting on the hills of God. There'll be shouting on the hills of glory. Shouting on the hills, shouting on the hills, there'll be shouting on the hills of glory, there'll be shouting on the hills of God.